Let's pray. Father, it is your victory that we applaud. It is your, uh, the sacrifice that you've made for us that we will always, into eternity, rejoice over. Uh, Lord, in the next few moments, as I seek to um, explain your word, a short portion of it, uh, may all of us be impacted by it, uh, transformed by it. Why else would we be here but to be changed by your presence and by your word, and that we would go back out into the world different than we woke up this morning because of our time here. And so we ask that in in this time right now that you would move and have your way in us, Lord. Take us to a place that we didn't think we could go, but that you want us to go and that you make possible for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boy, I, I thought to myself as I um, prepared my, not my last sermon, Lord willing, but for a while, um, I thought I'm, I'm going to be away from my CFC family for three months. What note should I go out on? What, what uh, sort of final word for the summer should I leave you with? And um, I, I really feel like the Lord brought me to this place. It's different confirmations, but I thought we should turn to a passage where Jesus gives his final word to his disciples before he goes on a break. Because Jesus will return, and he tells them, I will return, but as I'm leaving, let me give you my, my final instructions for you to do while I'm away. So for that, we're going to go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now, Acts, some of you may know, or some of you may not know, Acts is a, is a sequel. Acts is Luke part 2. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote about who Jesus was, what Jesus did. And then Acts is part two, and it's called Acts because it's the Acts of the disciples. Now that you understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did, here's what his disciples did, and here's what he wants us to do. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter one. Luke is writing to, most scholars believe, a particular person. He says it right there in verse 1, who he's addressing. So let's look at the first couple of verses to begin. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's like, you read Luke already, my gospel. Now I'm writing you something different. He says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now we'll just hold on a second there. He's doing a little bit of a recap, and he's setting the stage at a bird's eye view for what we're going to look at down low in the next few verses. What do I mean by that? He kind of gives a recap of what happened. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, teaching his disciples, And then he suffered. That suffering led to death. Everyone thought he was done. Even his disciples were disheartened. They didn't get what he was saying when he said, I'll I'll come back. But then he did come back. In over 40 days, proved that I'm not a ghost. 
this isn't a hallucination, through many proofs, eating fish with them, talking with them, having them touch his side, his hands, through many proofs, show them that the same Jesus that taught you, I'm I'm back, I'm here. And then he ascended after giving them commands. He gave them commands and then he ascended. So in the first three verses, that's what we get. A little bit of a recap of, of all of that. And now he wants to zoom in and go, now hold on a second, what commands were they? Before he ascended, what were those commands? Now many of us would love to understand what that ascension was like. I mean, did he ascend, literally keep going up and up and up into space? Was he able to breathe? Did he burn up in the atmosphere? Like, did he go to a star? Was he, you know, did other people see him? You know, were birds like, oh, excuse me, fly? You know, we have all these kind of silly questions that Luke doesn't care about. What Luke cares about is those commands that he left them with. And so we're going to look at that. Verse 4 says, while staying with them, Jesus, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he tells them, the first thing I want you to do is not do anything. Please, don't do anything. Don't talk to people about church. Don't invite people to church. Please don't make any disciples. You are going to make a mess. Please, first thing I want you to do is nothing. Just wait. Because right now, you can't do anything. Right now, you're going to cower. Right now, you're scared. Right now, you're going to be bumbling over your words. The gospel is not going to pour out right. Right now, as soon as the pressure gets put on, you're all going to run and scatter. Right now, you're going to be a miserable failure of a church. So please don't do anything yet. What I need you guys to do first is wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Some of you remember, if you've walked through the gospel of John, John makes it really clear, like in chapter 16, he tells the disciples, I'm going to go. I'm going to die, rise again, and then I'm going to leave you guys. And they're like, what are you talking about? Well, please don't leave us. It's better that I leave you because you need the Holy Spirit to come. And so he's reminding them that promise is going to come. Not many days from now. I'm not asking you to wait for months. I'm not asking you to wait for years. But in, in, in not many days, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is going to come. Now that's going to make the difference. Now you can follow my second command. After waiting and you receive the Holy Spirit, now you can advance the kingdom. Why do I say the kingdom? The end of verse 3. This is what Jesus was about. He talked about the kingdom. He said, verse 6, So when uh, they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, yeah, 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 waiting. Yeah, 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 the Holy Spirit. Are you going to kick Caesar out now? I mean, can you take over Rome? And put Israel back on the map now? Is that what's going to happen now? All these prophecies in the Old Testament about, about the Lord taking over the earth and, and all this stuff, you know, the line with the lamb, all this beautiful imagery of peace and shalom in all the world. Is that now? He said to them, it is, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus didn't say, no, guys, you misread all that. There's not going to be a line with the lamb and... No, there is. Not yet. Not yet. Something has to happen first 
before God takes over the world. Something has to happen first before Jesus comes back to reign. He came back to sacrifice and begin the process of the kingdom, and he's going to come back later to usher in the kingdom. You know the guy riding on the horse with a tattoo on his thigh and the sword hanging out of his mouth, and he's cutting people down, and he takes over in the book of Revelation? Ooh, that's a scary guy. That's Jesus. And so he came first as a lamb. He's going to come back as the lion. In between that, something has to happen first. And he says, I don't want you to worry about the times. It's not for you to know the times and the dates. I don't want you to try to figure out the alignment of the stars. I definitely don't want you preaching in churches that he's going to come back on such and such a date. As soon as you hear a preacher or read a book that says that, please throw it in the garbage. It is not for us to know. We shouldn't be busying ourselves with trying to figure out with newspaper clippings on our basement wall the exact time that Jesus is going to come. Every time Russia makes a move, oh, you know, Let's figure it out. Let's try to pin it down on a particular date. No, 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 no. That's not for us to know. The kingdom's going to come when he says it's going to come, but it's not going to come until this happens. What? What he tells them to do after waiting. He says, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What are they waiting for? What are they lacking? Why can't they do what a church is supposed to do yet? Why can't they be loud? Why can't they share the gospel? Because they don't have this yet. But once they do, now they're ready to do it. It's power from the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So right there, he gives them their second command, which is going to last a lot longer than the first one. The first one's go wait. Don't do anything yet. Please don't. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, it's time to get to work. You are my witnesses. This is what I want you to do. This is what your life is supposed to be consumed by. This is what the church is. You guys are my witnesses in Jerusalem where you're going to start. And then in all Judea, the broader land, and it's going to spill out into Samaria. Even the people that typically you dislike, the, the Jews really hated the, Samar- you know, the Samaritans. They, no, you're going to go out into there too. And then even beyond that, to the ends of the earth, every time a new island, a new land, a new continent is discovered, you're going to flood it with the gospel by being my witnesses. And so he makes no bones about it. It's pretty clear. It's not three paragraphs long. He doesn't roll out a 15-statement mission. You're going to be my witnesses. After receiving power, before receiving power, you guys, you guys are, would be so terrible, don't even do it. But after receiving power, get out there and be my witnesses. He's calling for world evangelization. How, does that, how is that going to happen? How is the world going to receive the news of Jesus Christ? Personal witness. One person telling another person, that person telling another person, that person telling another person, right? It's through personal witness. Now, I, I just want to pause here a second because I think that especially today with all our technology and, and things that we have going on, we've got Facebook and we've got uh, the ability to do mailers and flyers and ads in the newspaper and ads on the radio. There's a lot we can throw money at to do what many churches call evangelism and would even put in their, under their evangelism budget. It's outreach. 
outreach events. Let's have a concert. Let's bring in the newsboys, and then people come, and we'll have an altar call. Let's bring in a famous speaker, and then he preaches, and then the people altar call. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is because we already don't engage in being personal witnesses, it's easy for us to call that evangelism. Now, is it nice to have a Christian concert, invite a friend, and then the musicians stop for a minute and share their testimony, and then that friend comes to the Lord at the concert? That's great. That's great. But we can't go, man, I need a witness. I need to fulfill Acts 1.8. I hope there's a concert in town soon. Right? We can't go, man, I hope the church does a bouncy house thing again, and I can, you know, hopefully some people come. And we definitely can't sit in church and just hope that because someone drives by and sees the steeple that they feel a warm fuzzy and they decide to pull in. Now, those things happen, and we rejoice when those things happen, right? But we dare not pray, God, please send people through these doors if we're not letting God send us through these doors. Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus gives his command. And the command is not pray for people to come. The command is not hope that people get it. The command is be a witness. I know Jesus. I've witnessed him. I want to tell you about him. That's it. He's not saying everyone go to seminary. Not everyone be a pastor, but be a witness in your part of the world. I love how he has this expanding geography. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That would literally be impossible for those disciples to fulfill. There is no way they could take the gospel to every single end of the earth. So geographically they couldn't fulfill it. And then chronologically they can't fulfill it. Because he he's saying, do this until I get back. Well, Jesus still isn't back. Those disciples have died thousands of years ago. So we know that that commission, that command, isn't just for those disciples that he's talking to. But for every disciple that would be made into the ends of the earth geographically and until the end of the time chronologically. That means every Christian needs to roll up their sleeves and get involved in witnessing. And he makes it really clear that this is his command, that this is the task that he wants them to engage in. This is what it's about. And then he, there's a sense of urgency. I love how this paragraph ends. Look at verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Here's the ascension. Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I mean, he went so high until he kind of just went into some clouds, and they can't see him anymore. And again, like, did he disappear? What was with the cloud? Who cares? Right? And in fact, as you're reading this, you kind of feel rebuked. The fact that we're so interested in how the ascension happened because they kept staring, and they're like, we're waiting for the cloud to move. Well, hopefully it clears up. Is he coming back? What's going on here? They're staring, right? And so check this out. They're gazing, verse 10, into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I wonder how long it took for the disciples to realize two guys in white robes were standing next to them. Here's what they say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. Now, if there's ever a moment to read between the lines, it's there. Because what these angels are saying is, you see how he just went up? He's going to come back. Why are you staring? When he comes back, you better not be sky staring. 
When he comes back, you better not be stargazing. You better be what? Working. Don't, don't let Jesus come back and see you. Right? Don't, don't. I mean, we love the, the, the fact that heaven is a reality, and we've covered that recently. This is a hope that we have, the hope that we have laid up in heaven for us, and we cling to that. But when we cling to that, we don't just ignore the world around us and just, God, please. We cling to that in a different way. The fact that we know that heaven is real, the fact that we know that Jesus is going to come back motivates us to get to work now even when it's hard. It's kind of like when your house is a mess and you left the cup out. Oops, now you got two plates out. Oh, you're falling behind on the dishes. Ah, a few things on the floor. Mm, now there has to be sweeping. Oh, something spilled. I got to mop it. Now I got to sweep. And you kind of take pieces at it, but you're not. And then somebody tells you like, hey, Uncle so-and-so is in town. I'm picking up at O'Hare. Can we come over to your house about 3 o'clock? Ooh, you dare not say no. But you want to say no because your house is a mess. Now what happens? Oh, my goodness. Now you're sweeping. You're mopping. You're rolling up your sleeves. The dishes are getting washed. You know, you're yelling at the kids, whatever. And you're trying to get everything together because suddenly you realize Uncle so-and-so is about to be here. That's how it is in the Christian life. We kind of waste our time. We're looking around. We kind of, you know, live from church service to church service sometimes. And we do a lot of good things, man. We love on people and we give and, and we're sending uh, missionaries out all over the world. And the church does a lot of good things. But Jesus did ask, and when I come back, is there, is there going to be any faith? I mean, are people going to be doing what I asked them to do, what I told them to do, what I made very clear what discipleship is about? It's about making other disciples. Why did Jesus Christ give us authority? He gave us authority to go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do all that Christ has commanded us to do. That's our task. We don't want them to come back and say, God, we kept your church really well. We kept it running. We kept the church running, God. We threw our funds at it. We made sure that the building stayed nice we made sure that the people were cool when the summer was hot we made sure that the people were warm when the winter was cold and we kept the church going god we need to have more than that right we need to be able to say this is the person i talked to these are the people i was a witness to and we did it together as a church otherwise we're we're sky staring and we're not getting to work and so i love that urgency that it's left with the saying man don't don't, why are you scared, staring at the sky? Go do what he asks you to do. Go wait. And after waiting for a few days, you're going to receive power. Now, I think that if you're anything like me, and this may come as a surprise for those of you who don't know me or don't know me as well as maybe you thought you knew me. I'm an introvert. You know, people ask me, how can you be an introvert and you stand up in front of people and, and teach? It's different. It's different from being at a party and you're holding a little plate with an awkward brownie and you're like, hey, so where are you from? That's extrovert. To walk in, I mean, John's a perfect example of this, I think. I mean, you walk in, you're the life of the party, everybody's, you know, you're charismatic. That's not me. That's work for me to do that. If I go to a birthday party and I'm shaking hands, I'm talking to people, and I go home, I'm tired. I'm tired because I'm an introvert. I'm also pretty shy. What question do I ask? I don't know. Was that stupid? Oh, maybe that was a dumb question. I feel like I'm always going to put my foot in my mouth if I say something. Was that sarcastic or witty? You know, I don't know. 
And so for many reasons, witnessing can be a scary task. And I don't know that I've modeled it well for you guys. I don't know that I modeled it. I've modeled it well for you guys. When someone comes to church and they're asking questions, I want to serve Jesus. I call that silver platter evangelism. That, that's like the, the Holy Spirit serves it on a silver plate. Here you go. The person's asking. They want to meet. They already showed up at church. They're saying, Pastor, would you please answer some questions for me? Ooh, what Bible translation should I use? Oh, yeah, let's talk about Bible translations. Oh, do you have any theology that I can read? Yeah, let me explain some good books to you. You know, I want to go meet that guy at Panera. That's silver platter. But going out there and bringing up the conversation myself, that's, that's tough. And I confess that I don't, I don't think I've modeled that well for you guys. Over the past eight years, I think I've also been a victim to trying to drum things up and say, hey, let's, let's, let's create events, Let, let's make a program, let's, uh, let's redo our website, let's get some things out in the community. We've done it on foot, we've done it by mail, uh, we've done newspaper ads, we've done all kinds of things to try to get the voice out there that, hey, we're a church. They don't care. They know there's churches around. What they need is someone to witness to them the unsurpassable power of Jesus Christ's message, which is the gospel. That's what they need. I mean, I put myself in their shoes. If someone said, hey, come to church. You know, it's small. We sing some songs. Some guy stands up there and talks for 30 minutes, and then some of us go out to lunch. It's cool. Well, I do that at the Rotary Club. You know, eh, I got the Lions Club. Why do I need church? What I would need is someone to come to me and say, man, I know someone that will change your life. Radically change your life, man. Give me five minutes. I want to talk to you about him. And be a witness of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that scary? Well, there's a couple of reasons why that's scary, right? It's scary because uh, all the other awkwardness that I just talked about. People don't like talking about religion. People don't like talking about you know, especially Christians. Christians are laughing stock now. You guys are homophobic. You guys are, you know, impose your morality on everybody else. Nobody wants to listen to you. But I think that we hide behind that excuse when in reality, Jesus, God is priming the pump for people and we just need to talk to them. You remember when Jesus said the harvest is ripe? The harvest is ripe. What does that mean? If you were to go to an orchard, like an apple orchard, let's say, all the fruit is ready to be picked. All you need to do is take a basket and go pick the fruit. Well, what if some of them are too high to reach? What if some of them are too low? What if a worm ate some of one? I don't know. You know, and like then I don't know, like Honeycrisp or Gala. I mean, I don't know how to make those choices. See, that's how we act. When God said, I already did the ripening. You don't have to convince someone to become a Christian. I do. The Holy Spirit does that. You can never convince someone to be a Christian. This is one of the things I love about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, there's tough things about it. The fact that God chooses someone to be saved, that prompts a lot of difficult questions, but it also solves a real difficult one for me. If God isn't control over someone's soul, how can I pray that God does something about it? God is going to tell me, well, I don't know. He's got free will, and I just don't know anything to do. No, he can do it. And so it doesn't matter if we're talking about someone who's strung out on drugs, someone who's literally told you, I hate God, and slammed their fist on the table. That person is not too far from God's reach. Because he's powerful. He's sovereign. And we can pray for that person. 
and talk to that person and be a witness to that person. As scary as the world is getting, and in our part of the world, it's not as scary as places and other parts of the world where pastors are getting arrested and churches are being persecuted. But in our own very lame way, we're scared. We're scared to share. We're scared to talk to people about Christ. But that's the whole point of the verse, isn't it? He said, I need you to wait and please don't go anywhere because you're just going to make a mess until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll receive power to be my witnesses. See, we need God's power to be a witness. We don't need my own strength. We need His power to do it because it's His power that's going to make it effective. And it's His power that's going to give me the boldness to not be scared. Otherwise, yes, I'm scared to talk to people about Christ. Every time I'm on a plane, what do you do for a living? Ah, Lord, I can't get out of that one. Might use some euphemism for the word pastor. I'm a pastor. Oh, really? What kind of church? Are you a priest? No, not a priest. I got to get into the whole thing. It's awkward. And sometimes I'm, I'm very much tempted to go, ah, oh, no, you know, I just, you know, I teach, man, whatever. I'm going to take a nap now, you know. Because what if it doesn't go well? Then it's an hour-long flight and it's awkward. I don't know. It's intimidating. But the Holy Spirit will give you power. If we believe that, if we believe that, then we can follow suit with the early disciples who went out there and spoke God's word. Now, there's a lot of miracles that occur in the book of Acts, but when God, when Jesus says the Spirit will come upon you, you'll have power, he doesn't mean power to do miracles. Oftentimes, wonders and miracles accompanied the word of God in Acts. But in that context, what Jesus is telling him, he doesn't say, go out and work wonders and miracles. But to do that, you need the power. No, he says, go out and be a witness of what I just talked about in the first couple of verses, that Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he taught about the kingdom of God. Be a witness to that. And you're going to need power to do it. Jesus knows it's scary. Jesus knows it's going to be challenging. There's going to be barriers, but he gives us the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do that. And that is an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. We'll witness it when we start going out, talking to people, about the Lord. We don't want to keep the Spirit trapped up. The very reason why God's giving us the Holy Spirit, the reason why the Father's sending us the Holy Spirit, is to empower us to not hide, but to go out and do. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and I don't think we'll ever really get how powerful of a reality that is until we get out there and start talking to people about Christ. One other thing that I think is a barrier is we don't know what to say. We, we don't know what to say to people. We don't know how to answer them if they have questions. We don't know where to start. And I want to leave you with this. It's always the gospel. It's always the gospel. Well, what if they're struggling in marriage? The gospel what if they're really having a hard time with their kids at home? The gospel. What if they really struggle with their background? You know, and uh, somebody was just telling me the other day that somebody literally told them, I, I'm not going to come to your church. If I walk in there, trust me, the place will burn down. That person needs the gospel. We would have all burned it down already. 
if it weren't for the gospel. We'd all be dead in our sins, stuck, if it weren't for the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? It can be three minutes or it can be three hours. It could be three weeks, three years, 30 years. Your whole life you're learning the gospel. I'm going to give you the three-minute version. And if somebody decides to give you three hours, you can unpack it for three hours. If you only have three minutes on a train, you can get it across in three minutes. And we're going to do that by memorizing four words. This has become more and more popular recently uh, with a lot of authors and speakers that I respect. Four words, you can write them down. Hopefully you memorize them. And if you memorize these four words and understand how to explain them, what they represent, you'll be able to explain the gospel to people. You'll see this throughout all of the gospels. You'll see this throughout the book of Acts when the apostles are preaching, when people are being witnessed to. It takes these four components to explain the whole gospel and not leave anything important out. Okay, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. And I think this helps take the jitters away. You know what you're going to say. And you know how you're going to say it. Four components. I might say it differently depending on the person, depending on the context. But it goes God, man, Christ, response. In that order, leave one out, you lost the gospel. So we start with God. It always starts with God. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with you. How did we get here? God created us, and he created us with a purpose. It wasn't an accident. God created us to worship him. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. God is a beautiful God. He's an awesome God. And he created a lesser being that would give him glory. And in giving him glory, that lesser being would be completely fulfilled and experience joy. Okay, you can keep unpacking that or you can move on. God created us to worship him. Man, we were created wonderfully. We were knit together beautifully. We have an, a, an awesome purpose. Nothing in all of creation has a, a purpose like us to worship God, to belong to him, to be in relationship to him. But we fall. Man fell in the garden. We're born with a broken genetic, and we all choose to sin. We choose to rebel. We suppress truth, and we don't want him. We don't want that relationship because the relationship comes with responsibilities, and so therefore we're detached from God. Man is fallen. Man is sinful. And no matter how many good things we do, we can never expunge the bad stuff. And so we're always a mixed bag of good intentions and bad results, and it's not enough. We fall short of the glory of God. God, man, Christ steps into the picture. See, God couldn't just wipe out a third of the planets to say we need a sacrifice for man because the planets didn't sin. No matter how many innocent animals we wipe out, animals didn't sin. Man sinned. And so only man can stand in the gap. But man will always fail. You ever read through, ever read through the Old Testament? Every single king fails. Every single person that's supposed to come and deliver, they, they fail or they die. And then it, what they, the, the work that they did just dissipates and the very next generation is back to sinning again no one is ever able to do it david how awesome was he fell one man came and lived the perfect life that man couldn't live and then died the death that man was supposed to die then rose again conquering death to bring us across the gap back into a relationship with god and that man is jesus christ god man christ response what do you do with it 
It's not enough to just believe it. Oh, yeah, I grew up in church believing that. But yeah, man, but your life is in shambles. It's not enough to know it academically or historically. But you place your faith in him. You put your trust in him. You confess your sins and ask him to come into your life and turn things around for him. That's faith, not just knowledge. So your response is necessary. God, man, Christ, response. Guys, if you can communicate that, I just did it in about less than five minutes, I think. You can do that in three minutes. Or if you've got somebody's attention and you're sitting over coffee, you can unpack that over three hours. But that is the gospel message. The Spirit will start bringing to your mind verses. You know, you'll turn them to Romans 3, Romans 6, right? Ephesians 2. You'll go to those familiar places and explain to them the gospel from Scripture. But you have in your mind the basics. And we need to be able to articulate that. Every single believer should be able to articulate the gospel. When someone wants to be baptized, I ask them questions about the gospel, no matter what their age is. Somebody wants to be a member at CFC, I want to talk about the gospel. Why do you need church? Why, why be here? Why do you need Jesus? I want them to tell me something about how God expects a certain standard. We fail the standard. Jesus Christ met the standard. God, Christ, man. And I've responded to it. I put my faith in him. Response. All right, man, come on board. Welcome to CFC. Right? That's the gospel. And so what I want us to do is think about the, during the course of this summer, how we can go out there and be witnesses. Guys, we want to grow, right? We don't want to grow to be a big church. We want to grow because that's our mission. Think about, we use the typical formula that churches in the past decade have used to send mailers out into the community and hope that enough people bite that show up. You know what the statistics are on mailer response? 1%. So to raise that 1%, you've got to send out like a million flyers. And then maybe, you know, a few people show up, a few families show up. And out of those families that show up, maybe two of them stick. So we spent a million dollars to win a couple families. Or 50 of us can spend the summer and work on one person each. If half of them show up, we gain 25 people for free. Now, this isn't about money. This is about Acts 1-8. And the reasons why we don't do Acts 1-8 is because we're scared. But the reason why we shouldn't be scared is also in Acts 1-8. The fact that God gives us a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower us, to embolden us. If you've ever gone to exercise and you've been too long on an empty stomach, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, if I'm doing free weights, and I go to do the weight that I'm used to doing, but it's been too long since I've eaten, or I, maybe I've been eating poorly. And then I go to do, and I'm like, three, you know, I should be able to do 10 of these. What's going on? I even look at my log. I, I do 10 of these all the time. I ate poorly or I wasn't eating. But then I eat nutritiously, and I make sure I get the good stuff in my system, and then I go back, and I can put more weight on than I did last time because I grew from last time. See, we need that power, that nutrition that can only come from the Holy Spirit for us to do what we're supposed to do. Otherwise, we're just always going to be weak. We're always going to be scared. And it doesn't take an education. 
it doesn't take a charismatic personality. You don't have to be an extrovert. And you don't need to have all of Scripture memorized. You just need to understand the gospel and be a witness to it. My hope is that during the course of this summer, you'll pick one or two people and go after them. I'm going to be a witness to this person. Start praying for them. Start praying for them. And they might turn it down at first. That's okay. Bring it up another time. Don't give up right away. Invite them to breakfast. Invite them to lunch. Offer to go get coffee together. Find a way to talk to them about what is the most important thing in your life. The change that's happened in you via the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I want to ask the ushers to come up and we're going to take communion together.